it's been a, been a big week in our household this week because we've had puppies. Ooh, it's been a big thing. So um, we, we had seven girls yesterday. I mean, the prophetic people among us have a field day with that. So tell me what that means, please, someone afterwards. Seven female puppies. And there's the mum. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, all going in our households. And I tell you, when you see a dog eat the placenta of the puppies they've just given birth to, that is a sight you can never unsee ever again. Yep. You weren't there. I had to watch it. Anyway, uh, would really appreciate your prayers as we take a team to Australia and New Zealand. We're going to be in Sydney for a week and then Wellington uh, for a week, where the amazing Jack and Sally boys come from. And um, we're going to be doing a whole bunch of stuff as a team. Uh, we're going to do a, a conference called Mobilize in Australia with guys traveling in from all sorts of different places. Uh, and then second week, uh, based in New Zealand, working with numbers of different leaders and different churches. Please, please pray for us. We're very much doing this together. This is our church family. You are sending us. Please, please pray. Pray that the kingdom comes and gets extended. And that anything that we've got, we get to give away. Please, please pray. And pray for our families while we're away as well. I would really, really appreciate that. And uh, upgrades as well would be really awesome. So uh, just add that onto the list. So... All right, well, if you've got a Bible, you might like to turn to Acts chapter 19, and we're going to read there. And just as I was preparing for this message, I felt God asked me a question. He said, Phil, are you famous in the right reality? And so this morning, I want to talk to you about being famous in the right reality. And to kind of set us up, we're going to read a, a real cool story in Acts chapter 19. And the setting for Acts chapter 19 is that uh, the church has been kind of birthed in a moment of incredible power in Acts chapter 2, which is probably two decades before this story actually took, took place. So the church has been going for about 20 years uh, when we pick up this story, and the Holy Spirit is moving. The church is in revival. Uh, churches are being planted and started. People are coming to Christ, both Jews and Gentiles. And Paul, who is one of the primary preachers of the gospel in the New Testament, is here in this story in a, a, a major city called Ephesus in the Mediterranean, and he is being used by God in some extraordinary ways. So we're going to read from verse 11 together. It says, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and evil spirits left them. Some Jews went around trying to drive out evil spirits, tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of the Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them back. Jesus I know, Paul I know about, who the heck are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who professed sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. And in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. 
It's an incredible story, right? Amazing kind of moment where these chief priests who are witnessing the extraordinary power that is on Paul's life as he's preaching in the name of Jesus, they, they don't believe in Jesus, they're not following Jesus, they're Jewish chief priests, but they can see that what Paul's doing is working. And so they make this decision one day, let's do what he's doing. And so when they next find someone who's suffering from some spiritual oppression, they try the same method that they saw Paul using. In the name of Jesus, who he preaches about, come out. And what happens is that they end up getting a beating, somehow lose their clothes in the process, and end up running out of the house kind of with their tail between their legs, wondering what on earth had happened. And I think one of the things that they would have had a rude awakening about in this particular moment of their lives is that you and I are known in more than one reality. You are known in more than one reality. That there is a physical world, but there's also an unseen spiritual world where actually you and I are known. The Spirit said to them, we know who Jesus is. We know who Paul is. Who are you? My question to you this morning is, are you famous in the right reality? Are you famous in the right reality? Paul, when he is writing to another church called the Corinthians, he says this in 1 Corinthians 12, 1. Most of your Bibles will say, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. Interestingly, the word gifts doesn't actually appear in the original Greek. It's added later. What the word uh, used by Paul is, is the word pneumakatos, which literally means the hidden spiritual realms where spiritual things take place. So Paul is trying to say to the Corinthians, regarding the hidden spiritual realm, I do not want you to be ignorant, because our ignorance is killing us. And that's then he goes on to start teaching them about the spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit gives. But he's saying there is a hidden spiritual realm that you need to be aware of. It was the great writer C.S. Lewis who said this, you are not a body that has a spirit, you are a spirit that has a body. Did you get that? Okay, and that's why when you die, your body may physically decay, but your spirit will go on. That's why when the other side of the grave is eternal, because your spirit lasts forever. You're a spirit that has a body. You are a spiritual being. And more and more, the interesting thing is in our nation is that more and more people are waking up to the fact, whether they are Christian or not, that there is a hidden spiritual dimension to our lives. And in many ways, I think Harry Potter and Twilight have done the job that the church should have been doing in terms of educating people that there is a real realm that you cannot see with your physical naked eye that is just as real. Some research that was done recently at Nottingham University, they canvassed students and asked them whether they believed that there was another spiritual dimension to their life. Now, bear in mind that these are the kids who've grown up in a nation where secularism and humanism have been the dominant worldview. 75% of them said, we believe that there is another spiritual dimension to our lives. We don't know what it is, but we believe that there is something that we cannot see that affects the way that we live our lives. That's the culture that we're living in now. The fascinating thing is when you go out on the streets of Bedford and you talk to people about Jesus, often people over the age of 50 will deny that there is a spiritual reality. Those in a younger generation almost all say, yeah, I believe that there is a spiritual dimension to our lives. That's the kind of culture that we're living in right now where people are waking up. There is a different dimension, a hidden realm. God created us as spiritual beings. 
And one of the things that this story underlines is that what makes you famous in one realm is different than what makes you famous in another. See, to be famous in this earthly realm, what this earthly realm prizes is public deeds, public acts, things that we celebrate that are done in public. Although, interestingly, I read this story this week of the driving instructor who taught Adele, you know, the singer, to, to drive. Anyone here not know who Adele is? Okay, good. This story will make sense then. So, so this, this guy, Noel, who's a driving instructor, he got through all these driving lessons with Adele, but he didn't have a clue who she was. So he had no kind of framework for celebrity. And so what she started to do was sing songs in the car with him so that he would recognize her. And this is what he said. He said, I didn't know who Adele was, so she started singing in her lessons. The problem was, I didn't know any of her songs. <laughs> she would sing some beautiful songs and say, you must know this one, but I really don't know many celebrities. The interesting thing is, because of that, all sorts of celebrities now want to learn to drive with him. Because in his reality, he doesn't know who they are. So he's now taught someone from One Direction, someone from Mumford and Sons, some famous Hollywood actors. Why? Because in his world, fame is measured differently. Now listen, in the spiritual realm, fame is measured differently. In the public, it's measured by what you do in public. But actually, in, in private, it's measured by the hidden decisions that we make. See, the seven sons of Sceva were trying to use the right external methods to come to a place of victory. But the reality is, unseen realities are impacted by your unseen priorities. That was a really good point. <laughs> unseen realities are impacted by your unseen priorities. What you prioritize in secret is what impacts spiritual things. Your fame in the hidden realm is measured differently. It's not about what you do in public. It's about your hidden decisions. Therefore, my question to you is, how is your hidden life? Would the demons say to you, I know who Jesus is. I know who Simon Holly is. Who are you? What would they say? Paul saw extraordinary miracles and impacts in the public because he rightly aligned his life in private. Someone said this, that character is who you are when no one else is looking. That is the currency in hidden places. Who you are when nobody else is looking. That's what matters in the spiritual realms. Those hidden decisions that you make. Do you have a hidden life with God? Paul talked about this a few weeks ago, about having a hidden life of service with God and how our reward is with him. What we do in our life is live first and foremost for his eyes only. And you know, most of the people that I respect most in this world are people who've carved out a hidden life with God that nobody else knows about. They're the people that I really, really respect in life. The people who've made hidden decisions about hidden priorities. I mean, my wife would be one of those. I love her for many reasons. One of the reasons is that she has a rock-solid, hidden life with God. And I love it. It inspires me every single day. And uh, even this week, while we've been having puppies, do you know that sometimes God speaks not just to be profound? Sometimes God just speaks to be friendly. You ever notice that? Do you know, when God speaks, he doesn't always want to say, and thus saith the Lord, you're going to be going here and going there and doing this and doing the other. Actually, God loves to talk to his friends who take the time to listen, which means that sometimes God will just speak to you about the very ordinary things of life that you care about and he's interested in and wants to talk to you about. 
So even this week, you know, Carol's praying about these puppies being delivered safely into the world and a bit of a new experience, a bit of an adventure. And so she's just praying and she comes to me and she says, I felt God say that our puppy's going to go, our, our dog's going to go into labor on Friday. She's going to have her first puppy by two o'clock and there's going to be seven of them. All of which were exactly true. It was amazing. I'm literally on the dot. The first puppy arrived at 2 o'clock. I was like, you could set your watch by it. How does that happen? By, because someone's cultivating a secret life with God. They're becoming a friend of God in private. I tell you, those are the people you really respect in life. Remember, I, I once had the privilege of living with Terry and Wendy Virgo. Terry is the, the founder of New, the New Frontiers family of churches that we're a, a part of globally. And I lived with them for a year in the States and every single morning, I would get woken up at 6 o'clock in the morning by the sound of Terry praying loudly in tongues at the end of the corridor. And again, I could set my alarm by that kind of sound that was going to travel into my bedroom. I remember one particular morning, uh, being woken up as Nor, I went downstairs. He was still praying upstairs. I had my breakfast, got dressed. 9 o'clock, went out the door to the office. He was still going. Came back at lunchtime for lunch. He was still going. And I remember going up, creeping up the stairs and going up to his bedroom door, putting my ear against the door and just listening, just for a moment. I'm like, what what has been going on in that room since six o'clock this morning? And and what I heard was him praying for pastors in India by name, people that he was connecting. Literally, he was going around these church after church, praying for pastors, praying for the blessing of God, interceding for them with all of his heart, like he'd only just started two minutes ago. I tell you, that changes you. That changes you. Men and women who have made decisions about what they prioritize in secret change the world. They do. Because that is capital in the hidden spiritual realms. That's what really matters. And it begs this question, why? Why does God so highly prize hidden devotion? Why does he so want to bless that and use that as the the means of blessing the world? Why is that so important to him? And I think the reason is this, because what you do in private always demonstrates who and what you love the most. And because God is a God of love, he always works through relationships. That's why he prizes it. Just think for a moment about the, the people in your life who you love the most. The things in your life that you love the most, those demonstrate to you the value system of your life. Listen, God is no different. He's a relational father who works through relationships of love, not slaves or automons. He doesn't work through that. He works through his friends. See, in life, you've got these different spaces of your world where relationships happen. You've got Very public spaces, a social space, a personal space, and intimate space. And these different spaces of your lives are reserved for different things. And the smaller the room gets, the greater the intimacy becomes. The greater the depth of relationship comes. And Jesus had this in his life. He had these very public space moments where he was with huge crowds of people, a little bit like this morning. And there were incredible moments of kind of momentum and inspiration, feeding of the 5,000 and teaching at the Lake of Galilee. Beautiful kind of moments of, of us encountering God together. He also had smaller settings, social settings, personal settings. Love that moment where it talks about Jesus praying. It said, Jesus went off by himself to pray, and his disciples were with him. (laughs) He was on his own, but his disciples were with him. 
That was Jesus' life with his team. He was on his own, but they were always with him. A bit like you're a parent if you've got small kids. That's probably how you feel right now. You're never quite on your own. They're always with you. But Jesus also had this intimate space in his life. And intimate spaces are those reserved for only one other person. And it's only in those spaces where you know the deepest delights, vulnerability, and sharing of who you truly are. And this is what it says of Jesus. Mark 1, verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. The authority that Jesus carried came from the commissioning that he built in the place of intimacy. So you could today walk out this door and hire yourself a police uniform. You could go to the fancy dress shop in town, get yourself a police officer's hat, uniform, badge, stand at the middle of the street and start to try and direct traffic. How many of you know you still don't have true authority? You only have authority when you've been commissioned from the right source. Jesus was commissioned from the right source. His commissioning came from the intimacy that he developed with his father. The root of spiritual intimacy is not copycatting someone else's methods. The root to spiritual authority is developing intimacy with the father. And nobody can do that for you. No matter how much someone else disciples you, trains you, coaches you, encourages you, the only person who can build that kind of intimate relationship with God is you. Is you. And there's an invitation to come in to what truly matters. There are a few kind of hidden practices that will cause you to be known in the hidden realms. Here's the first one. We've already started talking about it. Hidden prayer, a life of hidden prayer. Matthew 6, verse 6, Jesus says, But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Do you see there the connection between your unseen act and encountering an unseen God? I'm not sure if you did. Let me just say that again. Do you see in that passage the connection between your unseen prayer life and you encountering an unseen father? How many of you in this room want to encounter the father more? Then go home, close your door, and seek him, and you will find him. When you make decisions to close that door where it's just you and him, and you're building intimacy and friendship with him, Jesus promises you will encounter the unseen father. You will. In fact, Jesus says he will reward you when he sees what is done in secret. Now, here is the question. What is the reward that Jesus is talking about? I'd like to suggest to you that the reward is not primarily answered prayer. I think the reward that Jesus is talking about is himself. The reward that God gives you when you prioritize secret prayer is he gives you himself because there is no greater gift that he can give you. Do you know there's nothing bigger, nothing mightier, nothing more majestic, nothing more satisfying than you receiving and coming to know God more. He is the best gift. He is the reward. In fact, Jesus, when he talks about eternity, he says this in John 17, verse 3. Eternal life is this, that they might know you and Jesus whom you sent. Jesus defines the very parameters of eternity as this, knowing him. 
You want to know what you're going to be doing for all eternity? Knowing Christ. If you'd be happy to get to heaven but not know Jesus, then you've got a problem. Because heaven is Jesus. Heaven is knowing Christ. That is the reward. And that's why very often the greatest answer to your prayers is not necessarily the breakthrough that you're seeking, but coming to know him more. That's why Paul, he writes to the Philippians in Philippians 3. He says, I consider everything else a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to know Christ. Everything else is secondary. This is the main event. This is the real deal. This is what you were made for. Do you know, knowing Jesus is not the route to something better. It is the better thing. It's what you were made for. And the word that scripture uses for knowing God is very interesting because the word knowing is the word gnosis, which doesn't mean the collecting of academic information. It means personal first-hand experience. So when Paul prays, he says, I pray that you would know the love of God that surpasses knowledge. He's saying, I pray that you would have a personal, first-hand experience of how good the love of the Father is. Personal, first-hand. You were made to know God. And just imagine Joshua in the Old Testament as he was looking at the Jericho walls that was standing in front of him and Israel's armies. And I'm pretty sure he was praying. I'm pretty sure you're saying, God, bring that thing down. Bring those walls down. Get us into the promised land. I'm pretty sure he was praying for that particular breakthrough. But you know what God did first? God gave him himself first. This is what it says in Joshua 5. It says, Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord. I've now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Joshua was praying for a breakthrough. He got something much better. He got God. And that changes the whole, the whole game. Suddenly when the commander of the armies of the Lord is standing in front of you, you realize you've got something much bigger than you were asking for. Joshua's breakthrough didn't come through something, it came through someone. Which means that sometimes the prayers you're asking, God won't answer them all. But he will always give you something better. He'll give you himself. And that's what you really need. He knows what you really need. And in fact, if you knew what you really need, you'd ask him for what you really need rather than what you think you need. But he already knows that. <laughs> that made sense to me. I don't know about you. <laughs> Jesus is the better thing. And of course, the incredible thing is God sorts out the Jericho walls anyway. <laughs> you know, he gives you something better and then he takes care of the rest. He takes care of the other stuff. You know, just as an aside, just 
for parents here, I know we're kind of coming to exam season for some of us. My kids are going through exams at the minute. Let me just say this. Do you know what? In an exam season, your kids' grades are important, but it's not as important as knowing Christ. Sometimes we can so drive our kids out of fear that they're not going to achieve that we forget the main thing. The main thing is that they know him. And if in the process of driving them to get the best results, they lose their love for Jesus, you've missed the point. And I just want to encourage you with parenting that we remember to keep the main thing the main thing, which is, are my children growing in their love for him? Which means sometimes, actually, I'd rather they were at church than studying. I'd rather they were being discipled than studying because that's more important. Now, I'm not saying that academic achievement isn't important and that we shouldn't work hard. What I'm saying is we've got to keep things in the right perspective. Keep the main thing the main thing. It's so important. I'm not quite sure why I said that, but I think maybe that's with someone in this room. What other things help us to develop capital in the hidden realm? Well, here's another thing that Jesus says. Matthew 6, verse 14, forgiveness. Forgiveness. It says, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Here's another great principle of the hidden realm. When you make choices to forgive others, the hidden spiritual realms know about it. They know about it. They know when you make hidden decisions to forgive those who've hurt you. And it's so often the case that when we pray with people who are experiencing a high degree of spiritual oppression in their life, and by spiritual oppression I mean no matter how hard you try, you can't seem to break through the issues that are stopping you from knowing God or moving forward in your life. You ever had those moments where you feel like, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, I just can't seem to get through. And often when we're praying for people who are experiencing that, at the root of their issues is unforgiveness. And Jesus, actually, when we make hidden decisions not to release people from their sins, it disables God's ability to forgive you. And how many of you know forgiveness is one of the greatest hidden blessings that God can give you in your life? How many of you discover that that's true? That when you came to Christ, one of the biggest burdens, thank you, Jesus, you've forgiven me. What a blessing. That's one of the biggest unseen blessings in the unseen realm that you could possibly give. And yet Jesus says, when you choose not to forgive others, it disables God's ability to forgive you. It's such an important spiritual principle. Why does it work like this? Well, because unforgiveness is a demonic value system. And when you decide deliberately to partner with a value system that is not God's, God cannot bless it. God cannot bless when you decide deliberately to partner with a value system that's different than his. He blesses things that are like him. And in his world, forgiveness is part of the kingdom. I remember when I first came to the church in 2010, and uh, I think it was within my first term of kind of working on the staff team. I remember I had a, a time with Simon in his office. We were just kind of chatting, catching up. And he was just asking me a few kind of penetrating questions about how I was feeling about different things. And uh, I remember saying, yeah, do you know what? This, this has been pretty, pretty tough, this situation. I'm working through some issues, but I'm fine. You know, I'm fine. I'm just carrying on, carrying on. He's like, yeah, but how do you really feel about that? I was like, I feel really angry. He's like, well, why don't we pray about that then? I was like, okay. 
And so we began to pray, and Simon beautifully kind of led me through a process of getting my emotion out, but also starting to repent of judgments I'd made about other people, but also the process of beginning to release those people and to say, Father, I forgive them. I release them to you. I tell you, a beautiful transaction takes place in those moments. When you choose to forgive, you're opening the door to your own prison and stepping into the fresh air. That's what happens. See, when you choose to hold on to forgiveness, all you're doing is creating a prison for yourself. But as soon as you make those hidden choices, Father, I forgive them. God says, brilliant. I love to bless that. I love to bless the things that reflect who I am. It's such a powerful, unseen weapon. Here's another one. Husbands, get ready. 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, husbands, hands up if you're a husband. Some of you, even some of you husbands are hiding in this moment. I can see you, and you're not putting your hand up. Hands up if you're a husband. Good, all right. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, get this, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, weaker vessel, as Peter's writing here, does not mean inferior. It means different. How many of you understand men and women are different? Good. What Paul's saying here is that wives in a marriage are worthy of protection, provision, and honor. And that it's a husband's job to do all he can to empower his wife so much that she becomes all that she can be in God. That's the husband's job. Your husband is not to be the know-it-all. Your husband's job is to empower your wife to be great. That's why he put you together. And Peter's saying, we're both heirs of grace. But then he says, live in this way with your wives so that your prayers will not be hindered. How you treat your wife affects God's ability to answer your prayer. I wonder if sometimes as husbands we're thinking, why is God not answering my prayers at the moment? Because you've been a pig at home, probably. <laughs> Start there first. <laughs> Think, well, I just keep seeking God about this, and this issue just doesn't seem to shift in my life. Why? Why? Love your wife as Christ loved the church. Lay your life down for her. That's the high calling on your life. Value and honor her in a way that Christ would. And God can answer your prayers. It's a hidden spiritual principle. God sees how our marriages are. He sees the way that we talk to one another. He sees the priorities. He sees the hidden decisions. He sees the hidden motives. He sees all of that. And all of that stuff is currency in the hidden realm. And it will affect your authority if you are a pig at home, but a saint in public. This is a big deal. I had the story of a leader I know who had a couple around to his house and they were having some issues in their marriage and they, he and his wife had tried all sorts of things to help this couple and they weren't really getting any breakthrough, couldn't really seem to find the key to change and then God, just in the middle of dinner, dropped in that, that 1 Peter 3, 7 passage and said he, his prayers are being hindered because he's not valuing his wife. And so he just cut straight into the dinner time and he said, God's just given me a key. 1 Peter 3, 7. Your prayers are being hindered because you're not honoring your wife. 
And suddenly it opened up a moment of breakthrough for that couple that they could walk through. It was a moment, a divine key of revelation. Honor is tangibly felt in the spiritual realm. When you choose to live a life of honor, the demons and the angels in the hidden realms, they know about it. Honor is tangible. Here's the next one. Fasting. <laughs> Can I hear a hallelujah? Hey, we love fasting. Matthew 6, 18. Jesus says, So it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Again, same principle. Fasting is a violent spiritual act in the hidden realms. It's a violent act. And again, it's so closely connected to intimacy. Did you know that the real reason you fast is not as a sledgehammer for breakthrough, but as a heart cry for intimacy with God? That is the main reason for fasting. Let me just prove it to you. (laughs) Mark chapter 2, the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, how come we're fasting but your disciples aren't? You know, we fast twice a week. Your disciples are always eating. What's going on? And this is what Jesus says. Mark chapter 2. He says, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? The inference being, Jesus, me, the bridegroom, I'm here. I'm with them. I'm right next to them. They're living with me. We're doing life together. The bridegroom's here. He says, They can't fast while the bridegroom's near. They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day, they will fast. Notice the context for fasting is intimacy between a bridegroom and a bride. Jesus says, the moment that you fast is when the bridegroom is gone, and you're longing for him to come closer. That's why you fast. And fasting, whether you're giving up watching TV, whether you're giving up a meal, whether you're going for a more extended period of time, fasting is always ultimately a heart cry saying, God, I value you above these other things in my life. Thank you for these other things. Thank you for my food. Thank you for my TV. Thank you for this. But above all those things, my heart cry, Father, is I want to know you. I want the bridegroom to come close. Fasting is a heart cry for intimacy. You know, my experience of fasting is that I hate the process of fasting, but I love the results of fasting. I feel physically dead on my feet when I fast, but spiritually, often never more alive. And I tell you, the spiritual realities know if you're living a lifestyle of prayer and fasting. How's it going for you? <laughs> I had this moment once in one of our conferences here where I, I happened to be doing a, a kind of an extended fast at the time and there was a, a guy needing some ministry and he could tell he was needing some spiritual freedom. He was looking pretty beat up and scared. And I remember walking over to him. In fact, Simon sent me to him. He's like, you see that guy over there? He looks like he needs help. Why don't you go and help him? So I'm like, oh, thanks a lot. So I remember walking over to this guy, and as I walked towards him, he literally saw me coming, and he ran to the other side of the room, which has never, never happened to me before. And uh, kind of 
on the, on the exterior, I was doing this. Right. <laughs> on the inside, I was thinking, what the heck am I going to do now? And I remember walking over to him and praying for him and with a few others and managed to get him through to a place of real freedom. And afterwards, he said to me, he said, I don't know what happened when you walked towards me. He said, but something spiritual in you reacted to something spiritual in me. See, prayer and fasting is a violent act in the spiritual realms. Jesus said there is a reward for that. And then lastly, caring for the poor. How you care for the poor in private affects your authority in the hidden realms. Matthew 6 verse 2. When you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. What was the reward? Public recognition, public honor. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then the Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. The inference in this passage is that the reward that God gives for those who secretly care and give to the poor is honor from him. An honor that comes from his mouth only. Jesus is contrasting it with the reward that those who give eloquent and large amounts of money in public, their their reward is public honor. The inference here is that your reward as you give to the poor is private honor from the Lord. An honor that is eternal in nature. Proverbs 19, 17 says this, Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward them for what they've done. How many of you would like to make God your business partner? Well, give to the poor, and you're lending to the Lord. What a beautiful transaction. You want God to be part of your business, part of your life? Have a radical commitment to giving to the poor. When God sees what is done in secret... He will reward you. Again, I heard a beautiful, just little incidental story from someone the other week. They were talking about often traveling into very poor nations, poor countries. And this guy said, so often, he said, I'm in these nations and the people I'm with are so dirt poor. He said, the only thing I can do is literally get my wallet out and give away every single thing that I have. He said, anything else would just be a travesty. Their need is so, so great. And he, and he says, and the amazing thing is, he said, God always takes care of you. When you give to the poor, you're lending to the Lord. And he told this story of one time he was in this particular place. He only had a one-way ticket, and he was trusting God for his ticket back home. And so he brought some money with him to buy the second ticket. But while he was there, the people he was with were so poor. He's like, I, just, I can't keep this money. I've got to give it away. If I'm giving to the poor, I'm lending to the Lord. He'll take care of my travel plans. And he just talked about, I'll just give it away, give it away. I've got to give. And then he just told this story. He said he was just waiting by the side of the road, wondering what was going to happen. He had no money in his pocket. He was just waiting, praying. Five minutes went by. Someone drove past in a car, wound down the window and said, do you need a lift to the airport? Yeah, I do actually. Jumped in the car, off he went. Someone else stopped them, gave them some money for a plane ticket. And God just takes care of the rest when you get your hidden priorities in order. How's your commitment to the poor? I tell you, I think one of the things that's going to happen in this next year for us, alongside a prayer awakening, is a fresh radical commitment to how we invest in the poor. I think it's one of the things that God's birthing in the underground caverns of this church right now. There is something happening. If someone this morning even came to me and said, I had this dream, God says you need to advertise the poor more. 
give to the poor, you lend to the Lord. Why don't we stand and we're going to finish.